It's Tuesday, the 6th of October, and welcome to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining the social, economic, political, and geopolitical implications of this time of pandemic. My name is Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution and the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. I'll be your moderator today. Now, this marks the seventh month, hard to believe, we've been doing Goodfellows, but for you first-time viewers, what you're about to see, the better part of the next hour, is a conversation featuring three Hoover Institution senior fellows, or Goodfellows as we jokingly refer to them, offering their unique insights into what may lie ahead in these uncertain times. Well, let's meet the good fellows, beginning with John Cochran. John's an economist and the Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. Hey, John. Hi, how are you? Good, doing well, thank you. Second good fellow joining us from his wilderness outpost is the renowned historian and author, Neil Ferguson. Neil is the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Hey, Neil. Great to be back on the show, Bill. Our third good fellow is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He is the Fawad Michelle Aljami Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution, and he just happens to be a best-selling author. He made the New York Times bestseller list. H.R., you're a bona fide academic and a best-selling author of a hot book. Congratulations. You're now Neil Ferguson. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bill, thanks. Great to be with you and John and Neil. Great to see everybody. Okay, I'm going to be listening for the Scottish brogue now to see if you really become more Neil. <laughs> I'm trying to become more H.R. I've been doing a lot of shooting here in my wilderness outpost. And, uh, you know, just to be prepared, you never know what's coming in, in this country. So uh, I don't think I'm gonna catch up with HR though when it comes to fire power, just, okay. just trying. We'll look for a shaved head next week, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> so gentlemen, for this week's conversation, since we are a forward looking operation, I thought we should look into about a month from now and what is seeming more apparent if we look at the polls this week, Joe Biden holding a double digit lead in one national poll of registered voters and even larger lead in a national poll of likely voters. So it seems like an opportune time to talk about the Biden presidency. And I wanna go down this avenue with it. Biden is a rather unique figure in American presidential politics. He has been around Washington for almost 50 years. He came to DC first in 1973. That means he has witnessed nine presidencies. That means he has witnessed the rise and fall, the rise and fall again of his party. He's had a lot of time to think about what works and what doesn't work for presidents. He's a lot of time to think about what a Democrat is in 2020. And yet the former vice president's a bit of a cipher in this election. We don't know where he stands on certain issues. So I'd like to begin the, the broadcast by positing this question to you. Is Joe Biden A, a different kind of Democrat? As Bill Clinton famously phrased it in 1992. Is he B, something familiar? In other words, a third term of Barack Obama. Is he C, going to be controlled by the left? Or D, is he Bush 46? And by that I mean, like Bush 41 and Bush 43, does he come into office on a largely domestic agenda and then his presidency gets consumed by world events, redefines his presidency? So which is it, gentlemen? A, B, C, or D, or none of the above, or all of the above? Well, I'll go first because I've had a go at answering this question in a couple of, uh, of different columns. I think there's a, there's a risk of D, uh, in the sense that uh, there's there's clearly likely to be uh, some foreign policy surprise uh, that is going to, to to hit, I think, early on in a Biden administration. And there is form for the Democratic Party going back uh, over a century of coming in full of uh, domestic uh, policy ideas and then uh, being blown off course by by a major war. It's, of course, what happened to Woodrow Wilson. It's what happened to Franklin Roosevelt. It happened to Harry Truman, Kennedy and Johnson, 
got dra- dragged into or dragged themselves into into Vietnam. And even Jimmy Carter had a little bit of a, a dangerous moment in 1979 when the Soviets went into Afghanistan. It's only in recent history uh, that Bill Clinton and Barack Obama uh, were avoiders of war, uh, partly based on this bitter experience of pre- previous democratic presidencies, particularly the Vietnam experience. But remember, even Bill Clinton ended up having to grapple with uh, with Bosnia. And although Barack Obama claimed that uh, not intervening in Syria was his greatest strategic decision, that is not the consensus view, I think it's fair to say. So I think there's, there's bound to be an element of D here. And as we've discussed on previous episodes, China looks like being the principal source of trouble for a Biden administration. Uh, I, I particularly think that Taiwan is an issue that could blow up more or less at any moment. Uh, it's not going to blow up in, uh, before the US election uh, because the Chinese don't want to do anything that might inadvertently help Donald Trump. But I could well imagine it blowing up next year. So I'll, I'll go for a little bit of D. Okay, so Neil, to clarify, you're not going down the same road as a Republican did in the 1976 vice presidential debate. Can we see that clip? It is an appropriate topic, I guess, but it's not a very good issue any more than the war in Vietnam would be or World War II or World War I or the war in Korea, all Democrat wars, all in this century. I figured up the other day, if we added up the killed and wounded, Democrat wars in this century would be about 1.6 million Americans, enough to fill the city of Detroit. If we want to go back and rake that over and over and over, we can do that. So, Neil, he has a point. Stuff happens. Maybe I can take a turn here. That's a very unfair clip. Uh, whoever was president in uh, when Pearl Harbor was bombed was going to enter World War II. Right. Unless we want to go down the, the libertarian line of we shouldn't have fought World War II, or unless you want to fault the Roosevelt administration for uh, the oil embargo against Japan, which which pushed right. them in. But it's, um, as an economist, I often hear the claim that republic, you know, GDP growth is slower under Republicans than Democrats, and that's unfair because you know, there's, there's luck of the timing there. I wanna go back to answer your, your first question though, who is Biden gonna be? <clears throat> Before we get on to who is, what, what misfortunes abroad are gonna challenge us, which I, I do wanna get back to talking to you, but you asked who Biden's gonna be. I think the answer is clear. Biden is not an academic like us, he's a politician. And he's gonna go with the ideas uh, that seem to do well politically. And so don't expect out of Joe Biden himself, a font of new ideas, as we have not seen in God knows you know, the, the half a century that he's been in Congress. Uh, I'll be curious to hear uh, uh, from, from you guys who remember the history, Biden's position on various foreign policy issues. I, I remember them as largely being wrong on just about everything, but uh, I'll leave that to you guys to fill in. So the question of what happens absent some external threat, which I just want to take a little time to think about, I think that depends entirely. The, the, the scenarios is what happens to the Senate. If there's a small majority left in the Senate, we will play what Neil uh, reminded me, I think very, very, uh, thank you, Neil, uh, that the American system works and the American system is designed to slow down immense change so that you don't get to do the Green New Deal, um, the uh, uh, massive tax increases, shareholder capitalism, and the rest of it on a a 51% majority. Uh, so the Senate will be still, if the Senate is still Republican, the New York Times will be aghast at their evil obstructionism and, and not much will get done. If the Senate goes Democrat, then we have a more interesting thing. And the thing I think to watch for here 
is the battle between the woke and the Woodstock. Uh, Joe Biden is, is definitely of the Woodstock generation, right. uh, who has very different ideas than, than the woke on the left, and, and perhaps we can go uh, in that direction. Now back to foreign policy. Uh, I want to introduce a, a slightly different idea. Uh, China directly uh, confronting the United States soon is a disaster scenario, but I would not think the most likely one. Today's Wall Street Journal uh, had a small story about the Azerbaijanis versus the Armenians and the little war that they're starting. Uh, you know, trouble in places where we're not paying attention is the most likely thing uh, to happen. Uh, trouble, you know, um, something going on with Iran and, and the Middle East is likely. Uh, people who have their own scores to settle and are not directly challenging the United States, that, that's, that's the first thing to blow up when we're not paying attention. And for deep trouble, I'll close with a final thought, um, deep trouble happens when we have made promises we do not intend to keep, as that great philosopher Lumiere once said. Um, and uh, you know that's what happened in Vietnam. Uh, and that's, I think, the, the source of uh, things where the United States is likely to get in enormous trouble. Okay, um, we do have a clip of Biden from the convention uh, explaining his philosophy. Let's take a look at that, and then I want to get HR your thoughts on this. I'll be an ally of the light, not the darkness. It's time for us, for we the people, to come together. And make no mistake, united we can and will overcome this season of darkness in America. We'll choose hope over fear, facts over fiction, fairness over privilege. I'm a proud Democrat, and I'll be proud to carry the banner of our party into the general election. So HR, I can tell you, is a recovering speechwriter. That's what speechwriters love to do. They love to give you all these wonderful flourishes and all these great words. But you listen to it, and the question is, what does it mean? What does it translate into real governing and real policy? That's more icing on less cake than I have ever seen in a long time. Exactly. HR? Well, Bill, what I hope is that these two clips will not be the sort of the impetus behind our new administration's foreign policy, or if it is a Biden administration, a Biden administration foreign policy, because what both of them allude to is that the administration's policy will be defined by partisanship, by what party is in power. One of the reasons I wrote Battlegrounds is because you know, none of these challenges should be a Democrat or a Republican challenge. And we really have to come together to understand these challenges to our security and our prosperity and to future generations on their own terms, view them through the lens of our vital interests, craft overarching goals and more specific objectives, and then galvanize not just the United States, but other like-minded countries to overcome these challenges. What's happened in recent years is that the pendulum has swung in foreign policy between parties because an administration comes in and they define their foreign policy not based on the challenges we're facing, but based on their opposition to the previous administration. Well, wait a minute, HR. So, so, so I want you're always singing kumbaya about how we ought to be nice and get together, which I appreciate and is correct. But we were asked for a forecast of what's going to happen. And I thought that clip was very clear. Joe Biden is, he says, I am a proud Democrat. And he's not an ideas guy, so what are, what's he gonna do? He's gonna do exactly what the Democratic Party, their ideas, their, 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 all their, their, their brain trust, if you'd like, has been doing since about 1965. Uh, and that's, yeah, and you know, you can pretty much characterize the thrust of that foreign policy. It's gonna be the central 
And that's not really that opposed. They, they seem to be now uh, getting getting a little bit angry about China too. But it's going to be sort of central Democratic Party uh, accepted wisdom on, on what to do and, and not that unpredictable. It's going to be about what Obama did. That's not really a big change back and forth between administrations, is it? Well, in some areas, it could be a big change. I think that I would worry more about 2016 than it would 1965. I mean, if, if he tries to turn the clock back to 2016, it'd be disastrous, right? That's back to a policy of cooperation and engagement with the Chinese Communist Party under the hope that they're going to play by the rules. They're going to liberalize. They're going to, they're going to liberalize their form of government. They're not going to be as aggressive because we'll be more accommodating to them. That would be that's, that's not where the Democratic Party is right now. Well, Democratic Party, sort of the center. He said, "I'm a Democrat." The center of the Democratic Party, the the guys in the State Department, they're all on board with. We got to be a little tougher with China. So that doesn't there, seem like it's likely. Is there it? is this strain of thought, and this strain of thought exists in in parts of the EU as well. That hey, what we really need to do is we need to cooperate more with China, which means accommodate their aggression so we can make progress on global issues. And by global issues, that means climate change and carbon emissions in particular. Well, the Chinese Communist Party would love that approach because what they would do is just string us along again with false promises that they fully intend to break and, and, uh, and to gain concessions in other areas. And as Neil said, it is a very dangerous time, John. I would say that you know, I would not uh, you know, really uh, underestimate the danger associated with a direct move on Taiwan between now especially and 2022 Communist Party Congress, which is supposed to be a great triumph for Xi, Xi Jinping and part of his agenda. Really, I guess the, the, the most adamant part of, of his agenda has been, has been to make China whole again, which he includes Taiwan. This is why you have the national security law and repression of freedom in Hong Kong. This is why you have the aggression on the, you know, on the, on the Himalayan frontier. And this is why you have you know, the party pursuing the largest land grab, so to speak, in history in, in the South China Sea. But if I could just go through policy by policy, super quick, back to 2016. If we go back to 2016 on Iran, the greatest achievement of the Obama administration was to empower Iran across the greater Middle East with terrible consequences for, for fueling a destructive sectarian civil war that created a humanitarian catastrophe that affected not only the region, uh, but, but Europe as well, and that, that really went a long way to placing a proxy army uh, on the border uh, of Israel. If you go back to 2016, sadly, you know, we're kind of on the same path that the Trump administration is on now uh, in Afghanistan, which again is to carry over to December 2011, when, when the Obama administration thought that, well, if you disengage from a war, it, it must end. Well, of course, wars don't end once one side disengages. And I'm not making an argument for massive commitments of troops, but if we disengage from the fight we've been in since 2001 against jihadist terrorists, we are likely to have a very rude awakening and have to deal with that threat at a much higher cost. So I, we could go, you know, actually you know, policy by policy. North Korea, the, the policy was one of uh, strategic patience under the assumption that, that the Kim family regime couldn't survive under this, you know, this young dictator, Kim Jong-un. Well, that turns out not to be the case. Right. And North Korea is, is more dangerous now than it's ever been. So I, I think it's really important that the Biden administration do, as we would all like them to see them do, look at these problem sets on their own terms. Don't define your policies as in opposition to Trump. Now, 
just just go trying to just quick quickly because that's probably the, the most important one we could talk about. And Neil and 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 uh, John would be interested to hear what you think about this. There are three myths about the U.S. approach to China that I see prevalent within the Democratic Party because of their opposition to Trump. The first myth is, hey, this is a U.S.-China problem. Hey, well, well, if it's a U.S.-China problem, what about you know, how they handle COVID-19, wolf warrior diplomacy, bludgeoning Indian soldiers to death on the Himalayan frontier, massive cyber attacks against multiple countries, especially uh, Australia. I mean, it's, it, it, how about the cultural genocide in Xinjiang? This isn't a U.S.-China problem. This is a free world China problem. The second myth is, really, this is a problem because Donald Trump is so mean, and if he would just cooperate with our allies, uh, it wouldn't have to be this confrontation of, of, of uh, an approach. There is a very high degree of international cooperation going on vis-a-vis -vis China now. What I would like to see, if it is a Biden administration, build on that, right? Just don't say, we're going to do something completely new. Build on the mechanisms that are in place now for confronting the Chinese Communist Party, their forms of economic aggression, uh, and so forth. And the third myth is, hey, if, if we compete, that we're going to be on a path to confrontation. This is the so-called Thucydides trap. And that place, that's a false dilemma, right, between passivity and war. And in fact, the path that we were on, I would say, under the Obama administration, was a path potentially to war because we had done so much to accommodate China. And, and, we, and we used their language about new kind of great power relationship. And President Obama said, you know, we have more to fear, more to fear from a weak China than a strong China. Well, you know, not if that, not if that, if China is under the control of the Chinese Communist Party. Like you worry, and, and I'll let you get a chance in Bennett, Neil. <laughs> no, no, I just, I just want to see, I, I think burning the clock back to 2016. Right. Would be would be a disaster. It sounds like your worry is not so much opposition to whatever Trump did, because you didn't really talk about much about what Trump did, but just, uh, whew, we got rid of Trump, which was the only thing we cared about, and now we just start up as if it's 2016. Uh, and other than your your economic aggression thing, which we'll fight about some other day, uh, but the simply the the worry you expressed then is just. We've spent four years um, foaming at the mouth about Trump. We wake up, it's as if it's 2016, and we don't recognize, we just continue the, the disastrous path of the Biden era uh, foreign policy. Is that, that's your, I'm sorry. The, no, the, no, um, no, exactly, you're exactly right. And then you give the initiative back to the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, Xi Jinping, you know, he, he says the word environmentally you know, 15 times in his speech, everybody fawns all over him. Well, he's building 70 coal-fired coal plants a year. Right. And so I and, and, and doing much of it in Africa, you know, the, the largest carbon emitter is right next to a UNESCO uh, World Heritage Site in Kenya that they're building right now. So I, I just think that the, the Chinese Communist Party is great at talking a very good game while they're actually undermining the very purpose of a lot of these international organizations. Right. And what, what I've heard from from some of the you know, some of those who will come into a by administration, people for have respect, there's very knowledgeable people. They've talked about, well, we really need to start up the strategic dialogues with, with, with the, the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah. That, the, the party would love that because they create the illusion of potential progress in the future. This is this, this campaign of co-option. And then once you're in, then, then to coerce you and then, and then to conceal their most aggressive actions is just normal behavior. I, so, I want to make a couple of, of points that will change the direction of this conversation significantly. Okay. I don't disagree with uh, your concerns, HR, 
But I think they might be misplaced in that I don't think that Biden will be the Obama restoration to go back to Bill's uh, list of possibilities. Yeah. The assumption that Biden agreed with everything that Obama did in foreign policy seems to me to be questionable. If you look back over Biden's career, actually, he wasn't wrong about everything, John. Uh, mm. he, he did make some missteps, but he certainly wasn't uh, soft uh, uh, in the Cold War. I mean, he was on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for a very long time, so we have a good tr- record that we can uh, we can examine. He, he got the first Gulf War wrong, but he got Bosnia very right. And if you go to his time uh, in uh, the Obama administration as vice president, he wanted action uh, on Syria. It was Obama who resisted that. Uh, So I don't think we should assume that on foreign policy, Joe Biden is going to be the Obama restoration, though some of the people around him might have that in mind. In fact, I think we might be surprised by how hawkish Joe Biden can be in the right kind of crisis. That's one reason why I don't think we should rule out that uh, Bob Dole scenario of another Democrat war, because you could just imagine Joe Biden actually getting fired up in the way that his old friend John McCain used to get fired up. Remember, they were friends, and you couldn't really be friendly with John McCain if you were a compulsive dove. But the thing I want to ask, which is really much more in John's territory, is what if it's actually economics that blows the Biden administration uh, off course? Uh, because I think there's there's no doubt that for most Democrats, what happens on the domestic front matters more than foreign policy. They're going to be much more interested in the scale of fiscal stimulus uh, that they can do. Will it be two trillion? Could they get to four? And of course, they're going to want to, to raise taxes, though not by nearly enough uh, to cover the vast expenditures that they have in mind on, you name it, infrastructure, tick the box, healthcare, tick the box, education, tick the box, just giving people money, because that's been uh, one of the patterns of 2020, tick that box too. So we're heading for a very, very fiscally uh, expansive administration, especially if they have the Senate, and especially if they have uh, a significant margin uh, in the Senate. And I wonder if that's the thing that will actually blow them off course. Now, uh, I remember uh, having a conversation with Larry Summers about this the Aspen Strategy Group not so long ago. And Larry made the observation that it could turn out to be the Carter administration, a Biden administration, if it gets on the wrong side Uh, of the bond market. Now, there's a sort of general assumption amongst left-wing economists that the bond market has now been completely sedated, if not euthanized, by the Federal Reserve. But I just wonder, John, it strikes me that from some of your recent writing, there is some nasty fiscal arithmetic coming down the pike. And I think that might be just as big a problem for the Biden administration as anything that the Chinese do. John? Uh, yes. <laughs> um, you know, absent some uh, bad surprise, some, I think you're writing a book on disaster, right? Some unexpected disaster from foreign policy. The predictable thing is, is what's going to happen on domestic policy. Uh, massive spending, some sort of, I mean, are they going to do the Medicare for all? Are they going to do the Green New Deal? This will be the big fight. Um, uh, Regulation, I would add as a big one that you didn't mention, not just formal regulation, but sort of letters of guidance is how things run now. Of course, uh, canceling the, uh, the Trump era regulation, stakeholder capitalism, by which the government will try to tell companies what to do. What does that lead to? In the first instance, before we get to the debt crisis, we get to sclerosis. 
we get to perpetual high unemployment, uh, an economy that just is slugging along, as, as many of the Obama years were, only worse because we've multiplied the problems. The problems of debt, uh, sort of debt is, uh, a debt crisis is like the Spanish Inquisition. No one expects it, it comes in the middle of the night, uh, but it comes sooner than you thought. Uh, I, that is certainly what I've been writing about as kind of the end game of all this. Uh, stagflation, the Carter era is a good one for that. Uh, feeling of malaise that the country has lost its bearings, no longer believes in itself, um, the economy is doing worse and worse, and then finally that shows up in economic and financial affairs. Yeah, that that uh, I, I wouldn't put the debt crisis first on the list, but is certainly out there as as sort of the final one that comes to get you. Uh, sort of in the same way, you know, cities. San Francisco is quickly killing itself with high taxes. Uh, now it has told companies that they'll have to keep have sixty percent of their workers at home even when COVID is over. You know, and you sort of wake up one morning and all of a sudden the bondholders won't roll over the debt. That's the the last strike after you screwed everything else up. Right, uh, gentlemen. Let me now take this in a different direction, and we're going to go back to foreign policy for a few minutes. Uh, and I'm going to back get back to the Bush forty six concept in this regard. Nineteen eighty eight, George H W Bush and Michael Dukakis debate. They don't spend a moment in the debate talking about the imminent collapse of the Soviet Union or sending troops into the Saudi desert to liberate Kuwait. 2000, Al Gore and the younger George Bush, George W. Bush, they don't spend much time talking about Al-Qaeda if they talked about it at all during their debates. 2008, John McCain and Barack Obama debate. How much of their debates do they talk about drawing a red line in Syria? My question is this, we can spend time talking about wars hot and cold involving the United States, and we can talk about China, we can talk about Syria, we can talk about Iran, but you watch the world, what should we be talking about this election? In other words, what's around the corner that we should be thinking about now? You're asking a foreign policy question or a domestic? No, it's a foreign policy question. It's in terms of in terms of what could pop up on this president's radar. Well, the idea you come into office and then you are thrown a curveball. So what what are the potential curveballs out there? Well, you know, I, I'll, I'll just I'll mention three here. I mean, uh, first, I think is is Turkey and and uh, how Turkey is becoming involved in geostrategic competitions across uh, across the North Africa uh, and into the Caspian now. Uh, Turkey is, is under the control of Erdogan and, and the AKP, uh, which is a hyper-nationalist party with an element of an Islamist ideology. Uh, the country is also promoting Muslim Brotherhood organizations across, uh, across the region in a way that alienates them from the Arab monarchies uh, in Egypt in, in particular. Uh, and, and Turkey has allied itself uh, to a certain extent or aligned itself, I guess this would be a better choice of words, in connection with the Syrian civil war, but now finds its proxies fighting Russians in Syria, fighting Russian uh, and Russian proxies, fighting Russian proxies in, in Libya, uh, and now enmeshed in, in, in the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan over Nagorno-Karabakh. Mm -hmm. uh, Turkey has also become very aggressive uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean, especially vis-a-vis -vis Greece uh, and over, uh, over uh, oil and gas resources uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean. Turkey's a flashpoint. Turkey is, uh, I think it's, it's drift away from the West is the greatest geopolitical shift maybe since the end of the Cold War, and it's against us. And so what happens next in Turkey, especially given the fact that the Turkish population has been fed a steady diet of anti-Americanism and anti-Westernism, uh, so the, the opposite of Kemalism, uh, essentially. Uh, so, so Turkey is one. The second, I would say, is, is a jihadist terrorist attack against the United States. 
Uh, I believe that these terrorist organizations are more capable today than they were on September 10th, 2001. We could talk more about that if you'd like on, on why I think that is the case. Um, and they are in pursuit of some of the most destructive weapons uh, on, on earth. And, and we're becoming less vigilant. Tell us why you think that's the case. I think that's the case because these groups are orders of magnitude larger than the Mujahideen era alumni uh, who had fought against the Soviet occupation uh, of Afghanistan uh, in, in the 1980s. And these, these are the alumni who, who committed the 9-11 uh, attacks. Right. Now we have the ISIS and Al-Qaeda alumni, which are, are much larger, they're much more mobile, they're much more technologically enabled, and they have they have access to much to, to much more destructive weapons. And they haven't given up their uh, their fight against their their near enemies uh, in in, uh, in in the Arab world and Israel uh, and the far enemies in Europe and, and the United States. So they're determined to kill our children. And um, and and the only way we know from 9/11, you mentioned the Clinton administration uh, and the debates not talking about Al Qaeda. You know, remember in 1998. Uh, President Clinton fired a few cruise missiles in Afghanistan and called it a day against Al Qaeda. Right, that, that didn't work. I, I want to be uh, so I want to inject a different note here. Uh, I think we're off on the wrong topic. Uh, these are all worrisome things, but the Romans would have called it trouble in the provinces. Um, some some troublesome person off in Syria is fighting some other troublesome person over there. Yes, it's a, we got to send a centurion and some soldiers over to deal with it. It's it's a problem, but this is not World War Two. Uh, we're talking about. And I want to kind of put my Neil Ferguson hat on and think about what are the really huge things that could go wrong, even if low probability. Uh, and I think um, the disintegration of our political system is, is one. I mean, I, I was worried about this last week and Neil said, don't worry, America will pull through. It's, it's still there. But uh, I think, um, you know, what happens if the uh, Democrats do take the Senate and if the woke, the woke millennials win over the Woodstock generation and do try to push through uh, stacking the Supreme Court, uh, Medicare for all, uh, Green New Deal, um, ending the filibuster and so forth. I mean, that, that the, this essentially civil war within the U.S., that, that's an order of magnitude bigger problem. Um, what it would do to the economy is, is a huge problem. And I do think if there's external threats, um, we just went through one tiny little pandemic, almost perfectly designed to wake us up, although I don't think we have because the death rate's quite low compared to like the plague or other things that happen. And we, we seem to be actually medically controlling it with unbelievable speed. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, diseases can happen. Uh, Bioengineered diseases, if you want to be a terrorist and, and really cause trouble, boy, you know, it's, it's out in front of you how to cause trouble. Uh, a nuclear explosion going off somewhere in the world. That's So there are, uh, I'm trying to think outside the box as Neil uh, will, I think, next. Um, what are the huge magnitude problems, not just perfectly predictable painful but small problems involving people fighting each other around the world. Well, John, it's, it's, it's funny you should bring these up because I have the full range of doomsday scenarios uh, in the conclusion of my book, Doom, that will come out next year. And there's, there's all sorts of great ones that you missed out. You know, solar storms could cause more climate change uh, than uh, Greta Thunberg. Uh, has imagined that's the right impact. There's, there's, that's a low, that's a really low probability really low. one, but it's not a zero probability one historically. But I just want to set your mind at rest 
about one thing, John. I, I, I think native-born Americans are always expecting the republic to end. It seems like constitutional crisis is, is something Americans uh, anticipate once a decade at least. But I spent uh, last week uh, dipping into Charles Dickens's wonderful book, uh, about his trip to the United States in 1842, uh, American Notes. And this is just to remind you that American politics has always been utterly shockingly awful. Quote, quiet people avoid the question of the presidency for there will be a new election in three years and a half and party feeling runs very high. The great constitutional feature of this institution being that directly the acrimony of the last election is over, the acrimony of the next one begins. And if you want to be reassured that the US that US politics has pretty much always been the way it is today, read Dickens. Uh, he even has a great line about the job of the president being to be more hated uh, than anybody else in the Republic. So I don't think the thing we should worry about is a crisis of American political institutions. I've got one for you, John, um, that, that seems to me worth thinking about in two respects. The crisis of the dollar is one of these things that's been forecast every year for at least the last 20 years. Uh, and we know that great periods of weakness uh, in, in the history of the dollar since Bretton Woods, uh, they haven't been that frequent, but they have happened. And I saw Steve Roach, uh, formerly of Morgan Stanley, making the argument that looking at the current account deficit, which is back to an enormous number, and thinking about where net savings are, there actually is quite likely to be a weak dollar problem, possibly even a dollar crisis for a Biden administration, which is going to be embarking on these huge fis fiscal expansionary plans with a dose Fed willing essentially to, to do yield curve control. But there's another reason why I think we should think about the dollar crisis scenario, and that's the speed with which the US is falling behind in the fintech race. And I've made this argument for a while that China is ahead on electronic payments, and it is also pushing ahead with its own blockchain uh, uh, program. Whether you look at Alipay or its 10 cent equivalent or what the People's Bank of China is doing, there's just no question that they're far ahead when it comes uh, to digital currency, however you define that. And that's the thing that seems to me to pose the most profound threat to American dominance. There's an assumption amongst your fellow economists, John, I've noticed this from many of them, that the dollar is kind of an un unshakable uh, monopoly in terms not just of international reserves, but of international trade. But it's not, I think, unshakable if uh, the US falls behind in fintech. Swift, crucial to the way the international system of payments works, the key to the way the US can enforce financial sanctions. But 1970s technology obsolete or at least obsolescent. So what about a dollar crisis? Uh, it'd be kind of Jimmy Carterish, wouldn't it? Yes, no, I'm only in Nigeria, I think, has better mobile payments uh, than we do. <laughs> uh, because like many things in America, our financial system is, is uh, very regulated to prop up existing businesses. No, I, your, your point on my fellow economists is exactly right. They, they've never seen a trend that they don't think will go on forever. Uh, low interest rates for the government, low inflation, though they have no real, nothing but cocktail party stories about why it's happening. They seem to think that this, this benevolent regime will go on forever. And we live in this wonderful time when anytime there's a crisis, anytime there's a recession, everybody around the world wants to buy U.S. government bonds. And the U.S. government can therefore issue enormous amounts, trillions of dollars of debt at absurdly low interest rates in order to bail out Yon and Sundry. Mm -hmm. uh, 
sooner or later, those people will say, you know what, they're not good for it. And not only might that uh, cause troubles in regular time, uh, in a time of crisis, when the US is the great world's financial firehouse, when it borrows and prints money like nobody's business to put out fires right, left, and central, that is when you'll have the dollar crisis and it will be you know, the worst possible moment to have. John, I think you pointed out on your blog that all the new issuance that's been this year in the COVID-19 crisis has been bought not by foreigners, but by the Federal Reserve. Am I right? Yes, uh, as far as the last time I looked at the numbers. Now, that leads to the puzzle is why are so many people willing to hold uh, U.S. bank deposits that are backed by the, the Federal Reserve? There's really, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury really are, are no different here. They're just slightly different colors of, of debt. Uh, but for some reason, people are happy to just sit on that and have been happy in time of crisis to go sit on that. Well, how long are they going to be happy to do that? And, uh, you know, in the next crisis, as America looks, yes, I agree. You've persuaded me we're not imminently in danger of falling apart, but we're certainly in danger of, of fighting a lot more and of the sort of technocratic competence to deal with our structural problems uh, vanishing in, in, in the usual wave of partisanship. So um, when, the, when the foreigners don't want to buy, buy US dollars as a safe haven, when they don't need them to make international transactions, which you, you increasingly don't need to hold a huge stock of treasury bills just because you want to buy a new car from Germany. Uh, you need the ability to, to have a computer that quickly buys and sells anything, really. So that whole exorbitant privilege of the US printing the world's money uh, rests on very shaky foundations. Mm -hmm. So gentlemen, a question for you, and this is a little sarcastic, but it's a serious question nonetheless. Joe Biden's elected on November the 3rd. On November the 4th, is COVID suddenly not as deadly, not as much a crisis as it seems? Does urban rest suddenly come to an end? Does everybody start loving each other again? Is the world magically changed? Or does Biden have a difficult year ahead of him trying to solve these problems? And if he does have a difficult year ahead of him, how does he go after these things, especially with the issue of urban unrest? Well, the pandemic's not going to go away. Uh, just because a Democrat got elected. And, and though there are conspiracy theories doing the rounds to that effect, they're very silly indeed. No, but the media, uh, the media perception though of it, Neil. Well, I, I think the, the media won't be able to ignore the fact that, uh, the, that there are excess deaths if we have a further third wave in the fall. Europe has had or is in the midst of the kind of second wave that we saw in the Sun Belt in the United States back in the summer. Uh, and uh, it's not as if every European leader is a populist of the right. You can't hide these things. You can't conceal the fact that in France, uh, where the archetypal centrist Monsieur Macron is president, they have had a significant increase in, in mortality in the last few weeks, and they're having to shut the cafes of Paris. So I don't think this is, this is the, the thing about the virus. He really doesn't care about your politics. Uh, and, and in that sense, I think the problem for the, uh, the, the new administration will be the problem that the that COVID-19 won't just go away uh, uh, like a miracle, as President Trump uh, hubristically said. Uh, even with a vaccine which isn't likely to be generally available in the spring, there's still going to be undoubtedly new outbreaks. It's a highly contagious disease. So no, it's not going to go away. I think there's less risk of popular unrest uh, to go to your second point, uh, with a Biden a win and a Democratic sweep, because most of the kind of protest that we've seen in the country in the 
course of this year has come from the left. And they certainly won't be protesting if Joe Biden wins. They'll protest if Donald Trump wins. But I think the probability of that has gone down significantly in the, in the course of the last few weeks. Let me, let me take this one on. Uh, no, the disease will not uh, go away. Uh, the Democrats will be, the Biden administration will be the dog, the proverbial dog that caught the car. Uh, now what? Um, Trump was actually right in pointing out that they didn't have any better ideas than the Republicans do. Their idea, as exemplified by Democratic governments, the one thing they have is to lock down all businesses, which has been an absolute disaster economically, socially, uh, particularly uh, uh, disparate impact of it on uh, poor people and minorities. But that's their, the one thing that they seem to favor more than the Republicans is locking down all businesses, which is a pretty disastrous place to go. Um, uh, you know, what do they say? They say, well, listen to the scientists. Well, the scientists have been wrong right, left, and center. The CDC has only just the last week discovered that aerosols actually do, heaven forbid, uh, spread COVID, something that, uh, you know, we've known for a while. So uh, the chance that they will do something dramatically, but they will be then faced with this horrible problem. And they're, the only idea they have that's different is lockdown, which would make it much worse economically. So we will be muddling through on COVID for the near future. I'm not quite so. Um, as I see it, the real question is between the woke and the Woodstock generation. Uh, so yes, they will not be out there um, protesting uh, Trump, but uh, when, as inevitably true, the great dreams of Green New Deal, um, uh, universal basic income, uh, free health care for all, and uh, who knows what else, uh, end up getting stymied by, as Neil points out, the American system of government, which slows things down until, uh, until lots and lots of people agree with something. Uh, I suspect they'll be back out, uh, back out um, in, in the cities where, you know, it was under, uh, the 1968 was under a democratic administration. And um, we're, we're actually having a similar rift within the democratic party about where to go. Mm -hmm. And HR, how does Joe Biden assume the commanding heights, if you will, uh, of the public? Uh, the Obama lesson, he, he wins by a large margin in 2008. Biden could easily do the same. He could get 55% of the popular vote. He could get a massive tally in Electoral College of these national polls to be to believe. But then he has to govern, he has to lead, he has to find a way to bring people together. And what he'll find is that the country is still fundamentally divided. So HR, how does he breach the divide? Well, it all, I think it all depends on whether he thinks it, it's his priority to, to get to the politics of addition, to try to bring more people into right. what he would craft as his agenda uh, as a young administration, or if he doubles down on what he perceives as his political base. I think this is one of the unfortunate aspects of, 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 of President Trump's approach to things is that he missed some opportunities to get to the politics of addition on some key issues and instead doubled down on the message that is, that is most attractive to his political base. And then this is, of course, a source of, of our lack of confidence. What, what Neil was alluding to from an, from an economic perspective and, and John from an economic perspective. But I think our confidence in who we are as a people and in our democratic principles and institutions and processes is, is fundamental uh, to an effective foreign policy, as well as getting after really the domestic issues that are immensely important to all of us, including some that were mentioned earlier, infrastructure. And I think education reform, which we, we have failed at you know, for many, many decades. So I, I just I think that it would really be important the attitude uh, coming in and and then really what I what I'm concerned about are are the fringes uh, on both political extremes and whether or not they regard the 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 outcome of the election as, as legitimate. You might recall that in 2016, when President Trump won, 
you know, the Russians were as surprised, I think, as anybody was. And they had a campaign ready to go to say, hey, the, Hillary Clinton won because the election was rigged. Well, once Trump won, they shifted those resources to say, hey, well, tr President Trump would have won the, um, the, the, the popular vote if the election had not been rigged and tampered with. So I, I just think that we, we can't play into the, this, uh, you know, the, this, uh, you know, the, the rhetoric of drawing into doubt our election process. I just have to tell you, because I was involved in putting into place a lot of the mechanisms to protect our election mm -hmm. between 2016 and 2018, and they're very significant in terms of changes uh, to, to our approach to securing the election and preventing uh, the, you know, the kind of Russian uh, really efforts to, to affect our confidence uh, that were so successful in, 20, in 2016. So our whole discussion has been premised on there is a clear outcome of this election and we're not in a crisis of legitimacy with investigations and impeachments and so on and so forth. Uh, so let, let's stay that way. But I want to ask HR, um, within economic policy and social policy, we see the clear cleavage between what I've called the, the woke generation and the Woodstock generation. Um, what's going on with foreign policy? What is the, within the Democratic Party, what is the huge debate that's going on? Or is there a huge debate? Is this just in the hands of, of the old sort of WASPy uh, regular uh, uh, core Democratic Party that has all, all, always been? I would say it's, it's a debate between internationalists and isolationists. And the internationalists are those like, the, like Michelle Flournoy, who have been part of the foreign policy and defense establishment for a long time, who understand the challenges to our security and had actually a, a voice at times in strong opposition to the policies, for example, of the Obama administration on, on South Asia, for example, or, or overall uh, in the fight against jihadist terrorist organizations. And isolationists who I think are largely uh, sympathetic to the, the, uh, the new left interpretation of history in particular. These are people you know, on the far left who see the US as the problem. Uh, and, and attribute all of the ills of the world prior to 1945 to colonialism, all of the ills of the world after 1945 to capitalist imperialism. And so they think, therefore, our disengagement from complex uh, challenges and competitions abroad is an unmitigated good because, hey, you know, we're, we're the problem. And so I, I think it's a fundamentally narcissistic view of, of the world. It is a, it's an approach to foreign policy that masquerades as being very humble, but it's profoundly arrogant because it doesn't give our rivals and our adversaries any authorship over the future. So I, I think that's a competition that's gonna play out uh, in, in, a, in a Biden administration and reflect some of the camps that did exist within, within the Obama administration uh, as well. It'd be very hard to tell actually, because uh, last I heard, he has about a thousand foreign policy advisors. I don't know where they hold these meetings. Uh, uh, and, and so I think it's in, it, at this point pretty unclear uh, just who's going to win out. But my instinct, as I said before, is that actually a Biden administration will be more hawkish than the Obama administration was. And that'll especially be likely if Michelle Flournoy goes to, to defense. Uh, that's, that's kind of where we started this conversation. How, how will the first foreign policy crisis play out. And I think it'll come as a great surprise to liberal journalists uh, when they look back and they realize that Donald Trump was not an especially hawkish president who uh, tended to avoid the escalation of, of military conflict, uh, preferring trade wars to actual wars. And then Joe Biden's going to come along and not be Obama uh, and turn out to have a little McCainish streak that nobody had quite noticed because 
during the eight years when he was vice president, he really had to suppress that. I mean, I think one has to remember that being vice president is a very subordinate role, particularly when it comes to the big strategic questions. You really do have to accept uh, that the president's the commander in chief. So let's not assume the Obama restoration. I think that might be true in some areas, particularly on domestic issues, uh, but I don't think on foreign policy we're going to get Obama 2.0. So isn't the history here that what happens just about every time is a new administration comes in with a change of parties, proclaims a reset, a rethink, uh, you know, we're, we're going to be friendly. Right. Then um, people who don't like us test us. Uh, they do something that we don't like. And then that administration, especially if it's a Democratic administration, has to prove its toughness and, uh, and then goes in and, and reacts with uh, some sort of military or other strong action that it later regrets and has to pull out of leaving a mess behind. I think I've heard that story before a few times. And I think we should remember that the Chinese are not the objects of every sentence. Uh, they, they will have their own agency. And one has to realize the extent to which in Beijing, the United States is now regarded as a kind of busted flush, as an over-the-hill superpower. I would imagine the first thing that the Chinese will try to do is to tell uh, Joe Biden, hey, the trade war is over, right? Uh, and then they're going to push hard on the tech war. Now, notice one of the things that the Chinese have been quietly doing in the last month or two is arguing that there should be new standards for data, global standards for data. Now, when the Chinese, who interestingly uh, lead a key international body, the International Telecommunications Union, are in a position to make that kind of proposal. Immediately, the new administration is going to be on the back foot. It's going to be on the back foot on the Huawei questions. I think the Chinese will really push on these tech war issues. Particularly, they will push to get the Commerce Department restrictions on semiconductor imports removed. And Biden is going to be suddenly faced with a dilemma. Does he yield to these Chinese pressures? And does he reveal himself to be much softer on China than Trump was? Or does he actually stick with at least some parts of the Trump strategy? That's going to be a difficult dilemma to resolve for him, I think. They're going to announce, yes, the trade war is over, and we will sign on to all the Green New Deal promises you'd make. Uh, and, uh, and, and I've noticed also, I was reading last week, that China has been very effective at, at insinuating itself in all the various departments of the United Nations and uh, international institutions. So if we just, uh, if we go by the rhetoric of, oh, we're back to the international institutions, we will discover we are back to a club that has a Chinese president in every single case. There's a lesson of- And, and, and that's, that's exactly- The detente doesn't necessarily last. HR? Yeah. No, I was just gonna say, that's exactly the point I was trying to make at the, at the beginning, right? I was trying to say that, you know, this will be a huge mistake if he turns the clock back to 2016, even with the language of conciliation. Because the language of conciliation is all the Chinese Communist Party needs to, to increase its aggressive approach in the Indo-Pacific region in particular and create servile relationships with countries in the region and then ultimately to establish an exclusionary area of primacy that, that ex excludes the United States and then isolates its regional, its, its regional um, competitor, uh, Japan. And this is, uh, for example, this language of new kind of great power relationship. Doesn't that sound nice? Well, as soon as you parrot that, as members of the Obama administration did, they used that language to bludgeon countries in the Indo-Pacific and say, look, the United States signed up for this, this new, new type of, of, of great power relationship, and, and you're on our side of the world now. Or, or as Yang Jinshur said in 2015 at, at the ASEAN conference, hey, we are a big country and you're little countries. Get used to it.
So I think it's, it's very important for us not to fall into the trap of, gosh, we really just do need to cooperate because Xi Jinping never means what he says. If you go back to the, the UN speech he just gave, God, sounds great, but none of it is true. And so I think the, the biggest advice, you know, to the new administration coming in, and these are, these are smart people who understand this, I, I, I hope, is don't be chumps. I mean, don't, don't fall for the same ploy again uh, after doing so for several decades. Let me try to, to be, say something nice about Biden and Democrats. Um, there is some undoing of the Trump administration that strikes me would be quite useful. We will rejoin the TPP. We will stop idiotic trade wars with Europe, our allies. Uh, those are just two examples that strike me as things that would be quite useful if you want to lead a, a global campaign to counter China. At least you could well, join defending us with your own allies. John, I would just point out it's going to be hard for Biden. I'm not, I'd ask you guys to think about this. I mean, I, it's going to be hard for him to rejoin the TPP because, as you remember, the pressure from the Democratic Party had convinced Hillary Clinton during the election to say she would not have joined the TPP. Now, I think what, what we could do with the TPP, though, is take, for example, as Neil was talking about data standards, that, that's, there's, there's a, great, you know, a great outcome in the TPP negotiations on data standards. So let's just take that part of it and try to apply that with like-minded countries, not only in the Indo-Pacific, but even beyond that. So I think there's a lot in the TPP that we can run with Right, right off the bat, but then I think it's going to be these bilateral trade agreements with you know, with Japan, the work that's going on with Vietnam now that could be used as models to extend additional bilateral trade agreements. One of the concerns, you know, this is Bob Lighthouse's concern. I think it's legitimate. Is that if you if you do sign up for TPP, how long is it before the China the Chinese Communist Party tries to get into some degree and subvert it against us? Well, a lot a lot less if we're not part of it. Um, well, I mean, maybe, and, but you do make a good point. So I was looking for cleavages in the Democratic Party, and you are exactly right that the Bernie Sanders wing, uh, they actually were quite happy with Trump's protectionist uh, stand. Uh, and they're not anxious to go back to the sort of uh, internationalist part that, uh, that, uh, that characterizes the, uh, the sort of the standard um, middle of the road Democratic. There's quite a lot of bi-American in the Biden campaign, actually, if you look at the language that that he uses, uh, uh, it, it's quite protectionist, at least rhetorically. I, I don't think we should take it for granted that there'll just be a great new era of free trade if Biden is elected. Well, well, there is, there is something that happens on an exchange of administrations. Um, there's stuff that they quietly say, you know what? Thank you, Mr. Trump. We're not going to say that we like what you did, but we're not going to immediately undo it because we actually secretly kind of like that sort of thing. And I much as I am against the trade war, I sort of uh, think that that's very likely to be how the Democratic Party approaches it. Well, you know, Peter Navarro actually accused the Biden campaign of plagiarism. <laughs> Joe Biden, plagiarism? Surely not. There's no precedent for that. Well, Trump, uh, Trump, Trump now having someone else take your tests for you, there's no precedent for that either. You've got to be bipartisan here. We, we're running out of time here, but we um, very quickly, we haven't talked much about Moscow, what Moscow thinks about this election, how Moscow would read a Biden victory. Well, as an opportunity, and it would view a Trump victory as an opportunity. And this is what I think all Americans have to realize, Bill. I mean, Vladimir Putin doesn't care who wins as long as he draws into doubt our, our, our confidence, our confidence in the result. 
And so, so I, I think he's having a field day these days because of you know, all the concerns about you know, potential voter fraud and so forth. Uh, and, and I think he has a campaign ready to go for plan A, you know, Trump victory, plan B, Biden victory, just like he did uh, in, in 2016. Actually, in 2016, he was banking on, on a Hillary Clinton victory and got caught short. This time, I think he'll be ready uh, with both fully developed plans, which aim, by the way, to polarize us on the big issues right? and, and then pit us against each other and reduce our confidence in our democracy. He must be hoping for the nightmare scenario we've been talking about. Uh, What's the legal challenges? He, he, wants, he wants the electoral crisis. He wants everything. He wants an electoral crisis. And then the following crisis of illegitimacy, where there's a, an impeachment investigations, the previous administration being thrown into jail. Uh, the, the more chaos, the better, as far as he's concerned. Mm -hmm. Neil, maybe he wants President Harris. Well, of course, it's worth bearing in mind that uh, whatever happens in November, uh, it could be uh, uh, President Harris uh, before 2024. And I think that's that's a really important issue. Uh, in my view, the, the, the strongest argument against uh, voting for Joe Biden is that you get Kamala Harris. Right. And the problem with the Kamala Harris presidency is that the personification of all that is rotten in the state of California will suddenly be commander in chief right. with, I, I think, zero uh, meaningful foreign policy experience. Uh, and that should give everybody pause. Uh, Joe Biden is, is really too old to be running for president, in my view. Uh, it is a sign of the Democratic Party's fundamental bankruptcy of ideas that he ended up being the lowest common denominator candidate. Uh, and I just worried that uh, if uh, if his health does not hold up, and one must pray that it does, uh, we end up with an singularly ill-equipped and inexperienced uh, uh, Californian Democrat in the White House. And, and then I think uh, you have to ask yourself uh, just what kind of a crisis uh, we'll be facing, whether it's foreign policy or a dollar crisis, I must express deep skepticism that Kamala Harris will be able to cope with it. Well, even if not, if she doesn't take over, if we don't have a death or a 25th Amendment process, <clears throat> um, I think you're exactly right with that clip you showed earlier. Biden's main selling point is he is not Donald Trump. Right. He's not the personal uh, characteristics of Donald Trump, and he's kind of a figurehead. Uh, and also, I'll ask my historians, um, this reminds me of uh, Woodrow Wilson or of uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt's last term. By the time you're a year or two in, you certainly have a figurehead rather than an energetic person full of ideas, directing policy, making the big decisions. We all know, you know the White House is like any other bureaucratic organization. The, the president is not a king sitting on high doing this, but presidential energy matters. And um, so how does the palace intrigue work? Uh, short of a, uh, you know, a formal transfer of power to Kamala Harris, which would itself be extreme, you know, talk about contention within the country. But let's just go with, uh, you know, Biden is, is quietly a little bit sleepy, and then the knives come out and who's actually running things. I think you are right, Neil, that Kamala Harris would be extraordinarily powerful. The vice president really, in a situation like that, the vice president really can take on what matters, which is settling the interagency conflicts and deciding what the congressional agenda is and calling people up and saying, you're going to vote this way on this bill or else. Uh, and that, I think, is very likely what we're going to see. 
Well, Woodrow Wilson was a very sick man in the final phase of his presidency. He actually got the Spanish influenza during the Paris peace negotiations, uh, and it fundamentally uh, damaged his health. He then suffered a major stroke in, I think, October of 1919, uh, and it was concealed from the public uh, just how completely uh, this uh, knocked him out. Uh, the one thing that, that did happen was that his party ruled him, him unfit to run for re-election. There were no term limits in those days. Uh, but really, the, the country was somewhat without a president during that period. And the uh, first lady had a lot to do with decision making. Yeah, exactly. I don't think that could happen now. I mean, I think it'd be extremely difficult to conceal uh, if the president had really lost his uh, command of his faculties in the way that uh, in the way that Wilson, Wilson did, but the Roosevelt case is a really good illustration of the importance of having the right person as vice president, because it was providential that Harry Truman was in that position uh, at the time uh, of Roosevelt's death. Truman proved to be an extremely effective president, far tougher actually on the Soviet Union than Roosevelt. Uh, himself was. So uh, that's why this is a worrying uh, issue. I think yeah. uh, Biden himself uh, ruled out a whole range of possible candidates uh, for the position of vice president when he committed himself to having a woman and implicitly a woman of color in the role. Uh, so this could turn out to be a very consequential decision. And uh, uh, and it's one of the reasons that I think some people will just hesitate a little bit, uh, even if they're entirely disillusioned with Donald Trump. They may just hesitate before they mark, uh, mark uh, Biden-Harris uh, on the ballot. Perhaps the last years of the Reagan administration, where, where poor Ronald Reagan was uh, beginning to suffer uh, dementia, is uh, an example, unlike the, the, the uh, extreme cases I mentioned of both Roosevelt and, and Wilson. But unlike uh, Truman, it looks the modern vice president is much more pulled into policy decisions uh, early on and is part of the bureaucratic process. Poor Harry Truman woke up and nobody had bothered to tell him the Manhattan Project was going along. Uh, or much of anything else. <laughs> well, in, in, in recent history, uh, Lyndon Johnson was certainly not very well prepared. He had been frozen out on foreign affairs in, in particular. And of course- Oh, his Rolodex, he, he knew where every body in Washington was buried. <laughs> and also, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't really Kennedy's, he wasn't Kennedy's pick. He thought, he thought there's no way that Johnson would give up, you know, the, the Senate, the Senate uh, majority leader position because that was much more powerful than vice president. And he, he and his brother and everybody else uh, were shocked when Johnson said yes. And NHR, when he took over, did he bring in his own foreign policy team or what happened? No, he, ke he kept the Kennedy team in place, but he kept the Kennedy team in place and he was very insecure about it. So what he did is he you know, he brought this inner circle in very tightly, and he only really trusted George Bundy, Dean Rusk, and Robert McNamara. The and they would meet on Tuesdays over lunch in the White House and discuss the most important issues, Vietnam being foremost uh, among them for foreign policy issues. HR, can you answer a particular uh, historical question for me on this, which I've been trying to find out for many years? Did they serve alcohol at those lunches? Because if they did, I've often felt it explains why the escalation in Vietnam went the way it did. <laughs> no, but the 1960s. You have to ask that question of the 1960s. But it, it's actually, it's not clear because Johnson was uh, a man who liked to appear to drink, yes. uh, but he would serve strong whiskey to everybody else and, and a very diluted measure to himself in order that he would be the one who remained sober. But the Tuesday lunches, I just have not been able to find out. Uh, from my own research, if, if there were boozy lunches, and it seems a highly relevant question to 
to the history of the Vietnam War. This brings up, I think, looking forward, the important question is who is going to be the policy team? Uh, I, I don't know the, I know the economists who are lining up and they are all the standard uh, people who serve in democratic administrations and have done so from Clinton, Obama, and so forth. Uh, they are not uh, uh, Kamala Harris's California team. Uh, so for her to be influential in a very woke direction would be difficult. Now we'll see who ends up actually being the policy team, but I think that uh, there's a continuity in the, you can't do things alone. Uh, there's a continuity in the policy team that uh, I, I think will matter a lot. And I don't know, foreign policy, maybe you guys are more, you know, you know who's, who's in charge, but that is what happens if you get a Kamala Harris, who's sort of, some of a sense like a Harry Truman, you know, she's, she is as far as Washington insiders are concerned and no one from nowhere. She doesn't have half of the uh, staff, of, half of the faculty of the Harvard Economics Department on her Rolodex. Uh, and so um, perhaps it, it won't play out quite the way you said it. It'll, perhaps it'll be more like the Kennedy situation where she would be thrust into the middle of, of, uh, of, a, of, of, a, of, a, of a situation that is more so, so final question and we'll wrap. Uh, do you expect Biden, Neil, HR, and John, do you expect Biden just to dig in from the considerable deep resources, the Democrats of Washington, or just like JFK, does he bring in sort of a hybrid group? JFK, I remember, had a Republican Treasury Secretary. He brings in Bob McNamara from Ford. And yes, he has Democrats involved, but it's a it's kind of a, you know, it's a unique little operation he had in his cabinet. Or does Biden, again, getting back to the original premise, is it predictably Democratic? If he listens to HR, he will bring along the never Trumpers. Okay. HR? He listens to HR. Okay. HR, will he go kumbaya? Well, I, I think there'll be a lot of people who, who, uh, who he owes uh, positions to who have, who have been really dedicated to Democratic Party foreign policy. Uh, there are many of them. I think Tony Blinken will have a senior role there. Uh, we've been talking a lot about about China. Kurt Campbell, who's extremely knowledgeable on China, I don't think I don't think he would turn the the, the clock back to to 2016. Uh, would be foremost among those who would have a, a China and Asia portfolio. We mentioned Michelle Flournoy. Uh, there are others, you know, who have been around Democratic uh, um, you know administrations previously. I think who will who will be prominent. I mean, Susan Rice, obviously, Tom Donilon. So I, I think I think we kind of know who they are. Um, the, the group that probably would trouble me the most are those who were in charge of Iran and Middle East policy in that period of time. Because I, I do think that if there is an unmitigated disaster of the Obama administration, it was the approach toward the Middle East. Okay. Let me jump in with a question because Neil, Neil may be able to answer this. Um, right. The Democratic Party platform was outsourced to AOC and Bernie Sanders, unlike my vision of my vision of just bringing in the same old insiders and what HR just said of just bringing the same old insiders for better or worse. So this could go either way. So Neil may have insights on that question as well. Well, I come back to my point that, that this will not be the Obama restoration in foreign policy, because if you think of the names that uh, HR just listed and ask well, what were their positions uh, on various issues during the Obama presidency? I mean, Kurt Campbell is quite hawkish. Uh, on China. And I think it's worth remembering that when it finally came to the crunch on Syria, Obama was kind of on his own. Uh, more or less all the people around him wanted a much uh, stronger intervention in Syria than he was prepared to countenance. And most people advised him 
uh, to honor the red line and enforce the red line, which of course he didn't do. So I think it will be a little bit like reforming the band, but this time the band without that lead singer, who was distinctly, I think, to the left of, uh, of most of his foreign policy advisors. That's why I think this Biden administration will be surprisingly hawkish, even if the faces are familiar uh, from, the, from the Obama years. Okay, and I think we're going to call the uh, broadcast at that. Uh, gentlemen, thank you for a very lively conversation. We'll see what happens a month from now when the election is held. So that's it for this edition of Goodfellows. Uh, as always, thank you very much for watching. On behalf of the Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, John Cochran, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, by all means, stay safe and stay healthy. We'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week. Thank you.